Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The saddest sight in the world is a broken child. A child who looks in a mirror and sees nothing worthy. A child who looks at beauty and can't see it for the dark cloud in his mind. A child who draws away from a touch instead of pulling into it for comfort and safety and love. A child whose bruises never fade to a greenish hue because they're always fresh. The saddest sound in the world is a broken child. A child who cries in secret because she cannot laugh in the open. A child whose lips have forgotten the smooth, easy curve of a smile. A child who is silent in the corner because he's never been taught the sweet dreams and escape that imagination can vocalize. The saddest thought in the world is that someone out there could break a child. Strip him of his faith and belief in goodness. Make her feel trapped in her own body or make him feel empty and unseen. Yet as horrific as those thoughts are, we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't admit that we can hear the breaking, cracking, fracturing all around us in this world. We know it's going on. But what are we doing to stop it? Are we yelling, pointing, pleading for it to stop? Are we bringing it up in conversations, forcing others to think about the uncomfortable? Or are we passive bystanders, waiting only for the icy grip of guilt to claw us in the middle of the night and whisper in our ears that we let innocence die again and again without protection? Those were my thoughts when I researched this week's case. How many people were aware of the pain inflicted? How many heard the cries? How many saw him break without stepping in to protect him? How many saw the bruises and heard the deafening silence or, alternatively, the screams? How many ignored him until it was too late? Now, how many are willing to step up to find answers and to share his story? Are you? This is the case of Irvin Greniger the third. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast. And to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Sleuth Hounds, Maggie and I have a few announcements before we start our show this week. Okay, so the first is a request. This mm-hmm. Saturday, Alice and I are going to release a bonus episode. 
And in that episode, you will hear updates on cases we've covered up to this point. So some recent ones and some back to the very beginning of our little podcast. So go back and listen again to those early episodes you may have forgotten because, you know, if you're like me, you don't remember yesterday. <laughs> if, so. you're, if you're like Maggie, you need to make remembering your New Year's resolution. According yes, to exactly. Exactly. So refresh your memory on your favorites and make sure to listen to us on Saturday. Um, So in that episode, you'll hear about new suspects in some cases, new details in others. If you've left us a written review on Apple Podcasts or a message on our Facebook page post from last week, um, you will probably hear some of those as well read on that bonus episode. And now for the celebration. Maggie and I are so incredibly blessed to have listeners like all of you who reach out to us, who turn to us when you need to relax, shake off the day, or forget about the troubles that are out of your control. We love hearing that you giggle over something we say, usually something Maggie (laughs) said. She's the funny one. Um, We cry when you tell us how much we mean to you. And Maggie and I have both said it before. We need this podcast. We need you, Sleuth Hounds. And we just pray that we can play some small role in helping families find closure, at least know that they have another advocate willing to take up the torch and bring light to a case that has been shrouded in the dark recesses of memory. And this past weekend, because of you, we wept for joy. Yes, we did. Yes. And because of you, more people have heard these stories because, do you want to tell them, Maggie? I'll give you a drum roll. We reached a hundred thousand total downloads of the podcast it was a pretty great day it was an awesome day so maggie here's to many many more and to celebrations that involve Krispy cream donuts and backstreet boys music party uh i'm in i mean <laughs> no more needs to be said can't go wrong <laughs> okay maggie let's get into the episode okay so this week like every week, led to me weeping while doing a bunch of my research because the boy at the center of the case was only 11, but he had suffered so much. So some of the age of some of my babies at school. Yeah. So picture them when I'm telling you this story. And I also had the pleasure of speaking to Irvin's sister, Tiffany, about the case. And in this case, there was a decent amount of research out there, but it's plagued with problems, including one big problem. All of the research is about a young boy named Adam Joseph Herman. But that's not the name you said. Exactly. Because the issue is that is not his birth name. That's the name that they gave him. Those who were supposed to care for him, but didn't. So at his sister's request, and I couldn't agree more, I will not be calling him by that name. Instead, I will be calling him by his birth name of Irvin Sylvester Greniger III. I didn't even know people could just change your name. I guess, was that like a legal change or they just... Well, it was an adoption. Okay, gotcha. Yes. So I will be referring to him by his birth name. Okay. So it had been ages since anyone had seen him or heard his voice. Years, in fact, since April 1999. So what had happened to the young four foot, four inch, 67 pound, sandy brown hair, blue eyed boy that Doug and Valerie Herman had adopted, but had to send back to state custody because he had become, according to Valerie, too hard to care for. Okay, hold on. So at first... I thought you were going to say like it had been ages since anyone had heard his voice because he was missing, but he was alive in this time. He had just gone mute. No, you would be right the first time. 
this is a very confusing case with lots of twists. So it was around Thanksgiving of 2008. And those very questions that I just asked, like what had happened to this little boy, were the thoughts and questions that were plaguing Crystal Herman, Irvin's adoptive sister and the biological daughter of Doug and Valerie, who had not seen Irvin since April of 1999. So she decided she had to find him. So she picked up the phone to call SRS, which is Kansas's Department of Social and Rehabilitation Services, because she had not seen her adoptive brother for nine years. And, you know, her, her mom said that he was sent back into state custody. And she's like, I would like to hear his voice. I would like to see him. So she calls the Department of Social and Rehabilitation Services. But what she was told would change everything. When Crystal asked on the phone, you know, to what home Irvin had been taken nine years earlier, how she could contact him. She was told, well, he's been living with Doug and Valerie Herman until 2005 when he would have turned 18 and aged out of the system. She said, "Mm, that can't be. She was in the household, Maggie, and she hadn't seen Irvin since 1999. Okay, and he was 11, right, in 1999? Okay. So she says, "Mm, the records have to be wrong. You've got to be mistaken. Or your parents are liars. Well, okay, we'll get to that. (laughs) So she said, you know, Irvin has to be somewhere, but that somewhere is most definitely not with her parents. Luckily, in fact, she said, since her parents, particularly her mother, Crystal alleged, had not treated Irvin with the love that all children deserve to feel. So, SRS now confronted with this fact that they thought that Irvin had been living with Doug and Valerie Herman, at least as far as they knew until 2005, and now hearing that someone else who was in the household hadn't seen him since 1999, started looking into the situation. So, was this like a foster care situation he went to live with the family and then they adopted him correct so were the home visits did they end after adoption then don't really hear much about home visits in this case okay we do know that the hermans had been collecting money from the state for the care of Irvin, even though that he wasn't living with them well the state didn't know that Well, that's illegal, people. Yes. So the Hermans had been collecting money from the state, $700 a month, from the time that Irvin and two of his biological siblings had come to live with the Hermans, and they collected that money until Irvin's 18th birthday. So long after Valerie told everyone that Irvin was taken back into state custody. Well, she told everybody except the state. Yeah, that's true. So if the Hermans had been collecting money, but Crystal knew that Irvin had not been in the household for years, then where was he? Finally, people were asking a question that should have been asked by someone years earlier. That Maggie, that's nine years of time during which Irvin was unaccounted for. No one had seen him nor heard from him. So this is like, a whole different level of missing for us as far as children are concerned, right? Like, yeah, we haven't had some family blatantly lie about where a child has been like this. Right. Yeah. We've never seen a case like this one. And now Crystal was left questioning if my parents led SRS to believe he was still with us, but I know that he wasn't. Why would they have lied? In addition to all of these questions, think of the shock when in 2008, Irvin's biological family was also made aware of this recent discovery. That had like completely slipped my mind, but yes. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. 
in an article with KAKE News, Irvin Greninger II, so young Irvin's biological father and namesake, noted the following, quote, when I was first told he was missing, I was figuring he was 20 or 21 years old, an adult. I wouldn't figure he'd be missing. Then they told me he was missing for nine years, and I didn't know what to think, end quote. Yeah, and I don't think you would know what to think. Like, what do you think? Yeah, it, to be told that, oh, your child's missing um, and has been missing for nine years. Yeah. But we didn't know it. So it was then, Maggie, that police began searching for Irvin, for clues, for answers, for something. In July 2010, while Irvin was still missing, Doug and Valerie Herman were convicted of felony theft for accepting those monthly $700 payments and for continuing to claim Irvin on their taxes throughout those years. Okay. They had received $52,800 in subsidies for a child whom they no longer cared for. Yeah, that's a felony. Yes. Nearly a year later, in June 2011, the two, Doug and Valerie, finally admitted to taking a portion of that payment, and they reached a plea agreement with the prosecuting lawyers. How can you take they a were, portion of that? Yeah, I, it's I deposited don't know. directly into your bank account. Yeah, they were like, "Well, we we only falsified it for these years instead oh, of all of the years." Okay. I, it was very confusing how that could be. They were never charged for not reporting Irvin missing. Because I feel like that's the biggest issue. Yeah. Like, like I mean, you stole $52,000 from the government. Like, that's bad. But you didn't report a child missing. So I feel like that's mm-hmm. the big issue here. Exactly. And as a result of these felony charges, Doug was sentenced to nine months in prison oh. and Valerie to seven months for the fraud, and they were forced to repay only $2,500 each. Okay, but I'm going to have to repay all my student loans when I'm a productive member of society, I, but it's fine. What, Maggie? That is a fantastic point. How do we get to that point in society? Yeah. It's like what as we were talking about this earlier. People that do what they're supposed to do continue to have more things put on them that they have to do. And people that don't do what they are supposed to do just get by with it. Just get away with it. Yeah, we, this needs to change. Mm-hmm. But before I get into even more about the current situation, Maggie, I'm going to step back, slow down, and let you know how we got here. Okay. So I'm going to start from the beginning. Okay. Irvin was born June 8th of 1987, and his parents were having trouble in their marriage. I won't get into nitty-gritty details, but I'll kind of give the synopsis. His parents were having troubles in their marriage, and his father was trying to get back home to his family so he could get things settled, create a stable life to bring his two biological children, along with his wife's two children from previous relationships, to him. So he's like, I'm just going to go get everything set up and send for you. Okay. So he sent his wife money for bus tickets for all of them to come to him, but they never came. Eventually, after a bit, um, Irvin's father and mother filed for divorce, and his mother wanted no contact with her ex-husband. When that ex-husband was finally able to see his children, remember he has two biological children, he saw the signs of abuse that you shouldn't see on anyone, let alone a child. So this is, so, is this Irvin's dad? It is. Okay. And so he took his child to the hospital, right? Because mm-hmm. there are signs of abuse and he was arrested. What? He was finally able to clear his name, you know, because I guess he's showing up with a child who has signs of abuse, right? Yeah. So he's, he's finally able to clear his name. But by that point, all of the children had been removed from the home. A judge declared him to be unfit to care for four children on his own. Like, and do we know the circumstances behind that? Or was the judge just like, meh? I think part of it was 
um, financial part, lifestyle, just a bunch okay. of different issues. Okay. Um, but he went to a lawyer and um, this lawyer said, you know, he wanted to find out like, what's going to happen if I continue to fight to get my kids back? And he was told that if he did continue to fight, then his children would stay in the foster system during that whole process. So basically bouncing around from home to home to home. And he said, but what would happen to them if I stop fighting for them? And he was told, well, then they could be placed and adopted potentially within a matter of months. And Mm. Tiffany and I talked about this on the phone And she said it so poignantly that, you know, a lot of people assume that the most noble thing a father could do is to fight for his children. Oh, see, no, I was going to say the opposite. Well, and that's what she said. Yeah, that's what she said to Maggie. She said in this case, the most noble thing was what he did, which was to let them go. Yeah, because that gives them a chance at stability, at being and maybe a loving family with a mom and a dad and other siblings, chances that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. And and that's what he thought would happen. He also thought that, you know, they would more than likely be together. Mm -hmm. So Irvin Greninger II terminated his parental rights, thinking, you know, this is going to give them those opportunities. Sadly, Maggie, what he hoped would happen, that they would be together, that they would be safe, didn't happen. Instead, the children were split up. They were sent to various foster homes with Irvin and two of his younger siblings being adopted by Doug and Valerie Herman, who already had two older biological children in the home as well, one of whom was Crystal, remember, who Mm -hmm. made the phone call looking for Irvin. And so the Hermans were going from a family of four to a family of seven, making Irvin the middle child. Okay. A Facebook page hosted by the local sheriff's department provided this description of Irvin. And full disclosure, they refer to him as Adam, his adoptive name, in the post. So When I read quotes, this one being the first one, I am going to change that name to Irvin when I read the quote. Okay. So the local sheriff's department gave this description of Irvin. Quote, he was an average student, but teachers could see the potential for him to do well for himself. Irvin's closest childhood friends remember another side to Irvin. They describe him as a young man who was his sister's protector. When she got picked on at school, he would never leave her side until it was time to be in class. Irvin liked spending time outdoors with his siblings and going to the lake to camp and fish with his family, end quote. So I have a question. Yeah. Does it hamper or help the investigation that we're calling that there's two like does it help it that we're calling him Irvin or does it hamper the investigation that we're not referring to him by was it Adam yeah so um I I will mention in the end of the episode the name that he could be known by and that is the name that he's called in the research but I feel like especially once you hear the full story and you understand what he went through at the hands of those who gave him the name Adam Herman. I think you'll understand why I feel it necessary Mm -hmm. to refer to him by his birth name. Okay. So from that quote though, Maggie, he just sounds so protective, like such a good big brother. Yeah. But what strikes me is how normal that post makes Irvin's life sound when honestly, from the accounts given by multiple people, it was anything but. Like it makes it sound like, oh, he enjoyed camping and fishing and time outdoors. Yeah, like the siblings. Yeah, mm, 
until you hear what I'm getting ready to tell you. So as I walk you through the story, Maggie, I will have to continually say words like alleged and reported because there have yet to be any charges related to any of the things that I'm about to tell you about. And it was really after the family found out that Irvin had not been sent back to state custody in 1999, as Valerie had told everyone, that they began voicing the concerns that they had been having from the very beginning. Unfortunately, because they waited so long to voice those concerns, so basically all of Valerie's relatives were concerned for Irvin's welfare when he was in the Herman household. Okay, and this is something we've talked about too. Like we've talked about like wanting to protect your family or protect your friends and not report like things that you may think are going on um, in your like little circle of people. But if there's something fishy going on, I mean, I would rather my family hate me for trying to keep a child or family member safe than like live in this pretend bubble that everything's okay when I know it really isn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And unfortunately, because they waited so long to voice the concerns, many now like question the validity of what they report because they're like, this is unconscionable that they could have seen what they say they saw and not report it. And I just hope that even though they didn't voice them when these events were happening, that someone out there hearing them now will come forward to corroborate or clarify, whichever it is, to either help find Irvin or to provide closure. So because, we still Maggie, don't know we still don't at? know. Nope. Family members now recognize that in hindsight, Valerie Herman never took to Irvin. In fact, they say she picked on him. And then it escalated. The first big red flag alert came into authorities in November 1996. So we're still three years before no one sees or speaks to him. So in November of 1996, police were called to the Herman home to investigate allegations of child abuse. And they found, quote, bruises and abrasions, end quote, on Irvin. So you may be wondering, like, well, why didn't they then fully remove him from the home, right? Well, I'm really not, though, because I feel like the child protective system is just so broken, like, I feel like yeah. this probably happens more than, well, it should never, ever happen. And I feel like it happens frequently with no real punishment. I agree. According to this source um, with the Charlie Project, it was Irvin's adoptive brother, Justin, who placed the call to report the abuse. So the biological child of... Of the... Doug and Valerie. Yes. According to the Charlie Project, he had witnessed several instances of his mother physically abusing Irvin, though he also st stated that his father, while his father knew of the abuse, never took part, which to me, I have a hard time reconciling that also yeah, without I mean, placing guilt. I, that, hmm. That's like, I mean, the author of Night says, basically, if you stand by and say nothing... You're just right. as bad as the people who are doing it. Yeah. And on the day that Justin called, he had seen his mother throw Irvin against a wall and pull his hair. But before law enforcement arrived at the Herman's home, he alleges that Valerie had convinced him to tell authorities that he had made it all up. How did she know he called? Well, I guess he told her or maybe no. she over. I don't know. A timeline by reporter Tim Potter for the Wichita Eagle indicates that Derby Police Lieutenant Tim Brandt told him, this reporter, via an email that, quote, it was investigated by our detective and SRS. The matter was referred for counseling through SRS, end quote. Hmm. And per an article by Annette Lawless for KAKE News, 
Irvin was still removed from the home and sent to Wichita Children's Home for two days. But soon the Hermans were cleared and Irvin was sent back with the Hermans given just a warning not to spank Irvin with a belt again. Oh, okay. And that, so that's basically all that happened from the first red flag. A second incident arose in early January 1998. So now we're like a year before anyone, the last time anyone hears or sees Irvin. In January 1998, Irvin's elementary school, Pleasant View Elementary, reported suspected abuse of him in the Herman home. According to that same article by Lawless, police interviewed several educators at the school, including one who, as indicated in the police report, said he didn't believe that Irvin was being abused because he thought Irvin would, quote, speak up if there was a problem. Oh, my God. Yeah. Irvin's only 10 at the time. Like, I'm doubting that most children who are abused are going to are going to speak speak up. up to adults. In this red flag instance, Lieutenant Brandt again told Tim Potter of the Wichita Eagle that, quote, the investigation revealed the injuries occurred while the child was engaged in sporting activity with siblings, end quote. Okay. Yeah. Only five days after the accusations of abuse this time in 1998, Irvin had run away. Okay. He's telling you without telling you that something is wrong if he's running away. That's what I'm saying. And that runaway instance was per report with the Derby police from the Hermans, but he returned within a couple of hours and no action was taken. But during that incident, Valerie reported to police that Irvin had attempted to run away six or eight times before, but was usually only gone an hour or two. And she told police that she thought he was doing it, quote, to get attention, end quote. Or, quote, because someone was beating him at home, end quote. After that investigation into abuse that was initiated by the school, Doug and Valerie moved away from Derby, Kansas, which is where they were living at the time, to Tawanda, Kansas, where Doug Herman could continue his, he had a successful, like, concrete masonry business, Mm. But with this move, Valerie was going to take a job as manager of the Pine Ridge Mobile Home Park, which is where they lived. And also with that move, Maggie, the Hermans kept all of the other children enrolled in public school. Guess who they decided to homeschool? I know it wasn't Irvin. It was. Because remember, if they send him to public school, what might the public school do? Oh, we'll call and report Report him. abuse. Yeah. Yeah. So they began to homeschool only Irvin, thus continuing the isolation. Valerie Herman would later justify the action and tell reporters and investigators alike that Irvin didn't like regular school. Oh, I'm sorry. Didn't the quote literally like 10 minutes ago say he was a great student? Yep. How his teachers all saw his potential. But she said that he didn't like regular school and that he actually preferred homeschooling because it meant one-on-one attention from her and that it was a better fit for him anyway because she argued that he suffered from, quote, psychological problems, end quote. Then, by 1999, Irvin was gone. Valerie told everyone that he had been taken back into state custody because she couldn't handle him. And then to other people's just that the state had taken him back. And that's what everyone believed happened, Maggie, until that phone call Crystal made in 2008 to find out that Irvin had never gone back into state custody at all. Let's talk about slipping through the cracks. Yeah, He fell through a gaping hole. Yeah, this is why at the beginning I was like, how many people heard things? How many people saw things? How many people let him down? And like, if Crystal hadn't made the phone call, we wouldn't be talking about him right now. Right. Yeah, we would have no idea. And wait till you hear this, Maggie. During these turbulent times, Irvin's biological sister, Tiffany, the one I spoke with, 
who had been adopted by a different family, had tried to maintain contact with him. In fact, she wanted to keep contact with all of her brothers and sisters, like to maintain that bond. Yeah, it is super sad they were separated. That breaks I my heart. I completely agree. And in our conversation, Tiffany recalled calling the Herman household several times in the years from 1999. And remember, from 1999, he's not heard from or seen again. So she called them between the years of 1999 into the years that followed. But in hindsight, when she found out that all of these years she'd been calling Valerie, Irvin had been nowhere. Now she thinks about all of the excuses that she had been told about why she couldn't speak with Irvin. Valerie would, Maggie, weave these stories for Tiffany in these phone calls. Like first, Tiffany called and Valerie was like, oh, the siblings are great. They aren't home, but they're doing really well. You should call back some other time. So then Tiffany recalls like, you know, calling multiple times. Every time they would be out, but Valerie would be like, oh, they're doing great. And she'd like give these updates. One time, around the time that Irvin would have been 16, so in 2003, and again, in hindsight, we now know no one has seen him in four years at that point, right? Tiffany calls and Valerie is like, oh yeah, Irvin's getting ready to take his driver's license test. He's doing really well. In 2005, Valerie told Tiffany that Irvin was about to graduate high school. Everything's going great. And all the while, Maggie, Tiffany didn't speak with Irvin on these occasions, but she had no reason not to believe Valerie Herman. Knowing what we know now, of course, Irvin couldn't speak on the phone to Tiffany because he wasn't right, there. Right, because he wasn't there. And what breaks my heart more than anything, Maggie are the stories that I'm getting ready to tell you. As reported by members of the Herman family, of what daily life was like for Irvin from the time he was adopted until the last we know of him in 1999. A situation felt not just by Irvin, but also by the other children in the home. So these stories I'm getting ready to tell you were not just things that happened to Irvin, according to my sources. Okay. But again, before I, before I do, and this is, it gets into what you were just asking, all of these are allegations, right? And here's why I'm bringing this up, because I feel like I need to clarify, there were people who reported abuse to authorities. I mean, you've got the school reporting abuse, mm-hmm. you have... Family members reporting it. You have neighbors reporting it. But each time the reports were investigated and then closed. And in my gut, I feel I know what's true. But I, I do have to tell you many of the details that I'm going to share. Doug and Valerie deny that they ever happened. But some other details they acknowledge as true, but they say they have justifiable reasons. Okay. Account number one is from Kim Winslow, Irvin's aunt. Like biological aunt or adopted aunt? Adoptive aunt. Okay. On Super Bowl Sunday, 1999. So we're talking like just weeks before the last time anyone sees or hears from Irvin. She witnessed Irvin... And again, these are her allegations. She says that she witnessed Irvin chained to the bathtub faucet in the Herman's mobile home in Tawanda. As in like he was playing with his siblings and he was in jail and they chained him there? No. As in he was handcuffed to the bathtub faucet. Hmm. She recalls that all day long, No one took Irvin any food, any water, anything. And later in the day, Kim suggested that she make Irvin a plate of food and take it into him, but that Valerie insinuated that Irvin didn't deserve to eat. And other relatives, Maggie, would corroborate that same site or told similar stories 
of Valerie forcing Irvin to sleep in the bathtub. Valerie told Kim that she locked Irvin in the bathroom because he'd been bad. But Kim would later say that she never saw Irvin cause any problems for Doug and Valerie, nor did she think that he would dare disobey them. So even if he was a bad kid, you still don't chain your kid to the bathtub when they're bad. Exactly. And that character statement from Kim is a far cry from the justification that Valerie would give for her actions. So she actually admitted that she did force Irvin to sleep in the bathtub and that she restrained him there. But she says she was told to do so. By who? She said, well, she argues that Irvin suffered from attachment disorder and either bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, and that it was a psychiatrist who had actually advised her to lock him in the bathroom after Irvin had, according to Valerie, threatened to kill both her and Doug. What? Yeah. She also argued that threats like that from Irvin were why she did on occasion whip him with a belt. This is what she says. So she actually admits to whipping him with a belt. She admits to locking him in the bathroom and she admits to restraining him to the tub. But she says she had reason to. In hindsight, now that everyone was aware that Valerie had lied about Irvin's whereabouts, Kim seemed to see with much more clarity what she now wishes she had reported long ago. Well, yeah. So in another article by Tim Potter in the Wichita Eagle, here's the description of another instance of abuse that Kim Winslow asserts that she witnessed. Again, with me replacing the name Adam with his birth name of Irvin. Quote, when Irvin was younger, maybe seven or eight, and living with his adoptive family in Derby, Winslow said she heard her sister tell Irvin to eat food that his younger siblings had left on their plates. He told her he was full, and she hit the back of his head, causing his face to come down in his plate, Winslow said. Winslow said it bothered her. I went over to him, and I rubbed his little head, and I talked to him to soothe him, she said. I feel sick for not reporting the incident, end quote. Well, I do feel like that would kind of stay with you because... If those incidents had been reported, would we be having, would we not even be having this conversation? Right. I mean, I would hope that had they been reported, Irvin and the other children would have been removed from the right. home. Account number two comes from Justin Herman, Irvin's adoptive brother. Remember, he's the one who made the phone call to police in 1996 mm-hmm. when he says he saw his mom throw Irvin against a wall and pull his hair. He now says that through the course of several years, he remembers his mother would often, quote, hit or beat him with a belt. Him as in Irvin or him as in Justin? Okay. Irvin. He also remembers Irvin being locked in the bathroom. And when he had questioned his mother about it, she told him that Irvin was in there because he was threatening the family and that he couldn't be trusted. So she's sticking to the story from the previous incident that he's threatening them. Right. Account number three is from Valerie's estranged mother, Margaret Davis. So Margaret Davis admitted that she and Valerie had a turbulent relationship, but she reported that Valerie could be, quote, very, very mean sometimes, end quote. And she also corroborated the bathroom punishment. And I feel like if your mom, I don't know what I'd do with my mom. Yeah. I would cry. I would too. Margaret Davis said that the act of locking Irvin in the bathroom had been something that had been happening since before the move to Tawanda. So it had been happening for a while. She recalled a time when she and Valerie's aunt had been visiting the Hermans and Valerie's aunt needed to use the bathroom. And she said Valerie had to unlock the door 
and that when she did, they saw Irvin with a blanket and a pillow in the tub. And Valerie told them that he was in there for the same reason that she had used before, that Irvin had threatened to kill Doug and Valerie in their sleep. And Valerie's mom says she remembers thinking that claim was odd because she had only ever known Irvin as, quote, a darling little boy, end quote. But because Valerie's mom knew of the turmoil that was in the house toward all of the children, when Valerie told her that she had sent Irvin back into state custody, her mom believed her and was actually relieved for Irvin's sake. So the same as Crystal. Yeah. So like all these people who are reporting abuse, when Valerie says, well, this, he's back in state custody, they're almost like, phew, good. You know, like, I'm glad for Irvin. Sad. Account number four. Irvin's uncle, Sam Bush, Valerie's brother. He says that he now wishes he had taken action as well on a memory that haunts him. He said that he had been living with the Hermans in 1995, and he remembers a time when Doug and Valerie's biological daughter, Crystal, was sitting on the stairs crying. And remember, Crystal's the one we can thank for us even knowing that Irvin was missing when she made that call looking to get in contact with him. In this instance, this is according to Sam Bush, Valerie's brother, he said that she was telling him that she couldn't bear to watch her mom hurt Irvin any longer. And Sam actually admitted his own complicity and Irvin's abuse continuing and the guilt that he feels over what he said next. He convinced Crystal not to report her mother because he told Crystal it, was, it would cause problems between them and that instead they should just hold out hope that the situation would get better on its own. <sighs> I know. He also says that in the time that he was in the home, he witnessed his sister curse at Irvin, scream at him inches from his face, beat him with a belt, slap him, and throw him down. And he said there were times that he would attempt to step in to stop the abuse, but that often he would end up withdrawing out of fear that him trying to get involved would only make the situation worse for Irvin. But it should have been reported. I agree. And Sam Bush recalled in an article in the Wichita Eagle, one very specific memory of the treatment that he alleges that he witnessed. He said Irvin had been around seven at the time, and he saw Irvin folding six or seven baskets of laundry in the living room. And he said he started helping Irvin fold the clothes because he felt bad for him. I mean, that's a lot of clothes. But as soon as he started helping, Valerie came flying out of the kitchen to yell at Sam for helping. And so after that, Sam had just sat down to watch television, but he like was still in a spot where he could see Irvin folding the clothes. And Sam actually saw one of the younger siblings walk by a stack of newly folded clothes and knock them over, which is like a to total sibling thing to do, yeah. right? But Irvin scolded his sibling for messing up the pile right? Like, listen, you know, I just folded this. What are you doing? Why would mm -hmm. you do that? And when Valerie heard him again, she flew out of the kitchen in a rage that she's the parent, not him. He had no right to tell his siblings what to do or not to do. And then Valerie proceeded to go around the room and knock over every single pile of folded clothes that Irvin had just completed and make him do it all again. Oh, this is where I would have had a total fit. Like, yeah. Mm. So with all of these accusations mounting, Doug and Valerie maintain that much of these accounts are lies. They say that they loved Irvin very much and that those making the reports, including Valerie's brother, Sam, and their daughter, Crystal, are lying. Doug Herman even argued that Sam wasn't even living with them at the time and that Sam would tr lie to try to harm them because, according to Doug, Sam would, quote, do anything to ruin us, end quote. Okay, okay, maybe these are lies, but how did they justify the fact that they didn't report him missing if he was, like, a runaway or whatever for right. that? I mean, yeah, what justification is there for that? And in my head, I'm like... 
that's a lot of people to corroborate similar stories. Yes. So they are all, Doug and Valerie said, nope, they are all lying. But Sam would tell you, as he did to Tim Potter of the Wichita Eagle, that the guilt he feels doesn't lie. He told Potter that he blames himself. He said, quote, we should have done more. I don't blame Crystal or her brother, Justin. At the time, they were kids. I was the adult the night I went in there and Crystal was sitting on those stairs and I talked her out of it, end quote. He said that the whole family would walk on eggshells around Valerie because they knew that if they did anything to make her upset, that whatever scene was already being made would get worse. These are his words. This is what he says. And while that was his justification then, he says he now realizes that there shouldn't have been any justification of that behavior at all. Right. And Maggie, I mean, I feel like if what he were saying weren't true, then I don't know why you would ever admit to what he said his own role was in allowing child abuse to continue. Right, exactly. Yes. So when Valerie told her brother Sam as well, like just as she had told everybody else that Irvin was back in state custody in 1999, he reported feeling relieved. Again, just like Valerie's mother, you know, just like the other family members, because while he knew, this is what he said in an interview, while he knew that Irvin had already been damaged emotionally and psychologically, Sam Bush was thinking, well, at least the physical abuse will end. But as we know, Maggie, Irvin was never sent back to state custody, as everybody was told, nor was he living happily in the Herman household as Tiffany had been told. So now, Law enforcement had to set about figuring out where Irvin Greninger III, a.k.a. Adam Herman, was for all these years. Since the first story that was told that he had been, you know, sent back to state custody was proven to be a lie. Obviously. As you can imagine, yes. Doug and Valerie's story changed. Oh, okay. Now, they maintain that in 1999, when Irvin disappeared... Valerie had spanked him with a belt. They had an argument with him, like with him saying, like, I'm running away and I'm not coming back. And Valerie said, good. And that he had indeed run away. Okay. He ran away. We just didn't report it. Yeah. Basically, they said that they went out to look for him and searched for several hours, but they assumed that one of two things must have happened when they couldn't find him. Either he would return home in a few hours since, you know, they said that he had run away like this before. Or number two, they're like, maybe he ran away to his biological parents. Either way, they told police in, you know, 2008 when all of this is coming to light so it's not a couple hours that he's been ran away that he has run away it's It's nine years. years yes so they told police that they didn't report it at the time because they were afraid that because they had been told not to spank Irvin with a belt again and that they had that the state would take their other children away if the police found out he was missing first off they didn't report a period right no so that, but that was the reason why they said they didn't report it. Okay. In terms of resolution in Irvin's case, herein lies the problem, Maggie. The Hermans have maintained over the years that Irvin ran away and that they say he, well, he's likely still alive out there somewhere. While there are others, most, who fear the worst and want to accuse the Hermans of foul play in terms of Irvin's disappearance. While the Hermans are persons of interest in the disappearance, there are many people out there who want murder charges. I feel like that would be kind of hard to bring about, though. Right. And the logistics are that, I mean, first we have to prove that Irvin is deceased. Right. Right as a first step the butler county sheriff in 2009 craig murphy argued in a news interview quote 
what are we going to lock them up for? Because if you lock someone up, you better have the proof to back up what you just did. We're not at that point. I don't know if we're going to get to that point, end quote, as he argued that he wanted to make sure that whatever charges he might level at the Hermans would stand up in court. I mean, I, I do get feel that. like, yeah, I do too, but I do feel like, I mean, I can see what he's saying, but then you hear all of this that's happened to this kid and you're like, somebody needs to be in jail for this. Yeah. Like, even if it's just for the child abuse. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say too. Like, I feel, I understand and it happens in so many cases that we want swift justice and justice is slow. Mm-hmm. Like we need to make sure that we have all of the evidence, all our ducks in a row before we take someone to trial. But I do personally feel that at minimum with so much corroboration that the abuse should carry a punishment at least in addition to the fact that they didn't report him missing. Right. Yes. Like, and to me, one other detail that doesn't look good, in my opinion, for the Hermans, is the fact that very soon after Irvin's disappearance, Doug and Valerie moved again to oh. Sedgwick. And, like, I know I'm judging based on what I would do. And, yes, I understand that just a couple of weeks ago, Maggie, we said that, yeah. like, everybody reacts differently. Like, I can't mm-hmm. judge. But I will just say that if my child went missing, I would never leave by choice where I was living at the time because right, I would because hold maybe out they hope. come back. Yes. And if they're going to come back, where are they going to come looking for me? The place where they last saw me. So I would have stayed put mm-hmm. as for murder charges though, as of yet, no human remains have been located again, making the leveling of a charge like that very difficult. After Irvin was discovered missing for all those years, law enforcement began digging, both literally and figuratively, into the Hermans. They went into the Herman home and seized laptops, medical records, pictures, and much more. They also literally dug around properties owned by the Hermans over the years. After receiving one tip from an out-of-stater, Police dug and sifted ground around the Herman's old mobile home near a shed that Doug had put in near the time Irvin was last seen. So there, remember, he works in concrete masonry. Mm. So this tip was that, you know, could he be buried under or around this shed? Law enforcement searched for six hours before realizing that they wouldn't find what they were looking for. They have used cadaver dogs. They have searched in several places. They've spent money on um, that ground-penetrating sonar searches, you know, that can look under, like, concrete and things like that. And while they have not released what all they have found as a result of these multiple search efforts, they did, in several reports, I saw it corroborated, say that they had discovered, quote, the answer to one of the questions they had, end quote. But they haven't said what that question is. So if I had to hypothesize, I would guess that the question is... Is Irvin still alive? Right. Or like, did he leave of his own volition? Like, those are the only two questions that I can think of. Mm-hmm. But whatever they found, they said that they are, quote, holding tightly, end quote, onto it. So like holding tightly until they have something more than hearsay to attach it to. Many have criticized the investigation that it was running under the assumption from early on that Irvin were dead rather than alive. But Butler County Sheriff Craig Murphy said that choice was strategic because they could actually get more resources for the investigation if it were investigated that way. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't either, but I read that in a report, so I was like, hmm. Law enforcement did ask for familial DNA from Irvin's biological family. So from his father, from Tiffany, 
um, just to help them to potentially identify or find Irvin in the future. Meanwhile, Valerie has been attempting to provide an explanation for all of these accusations being leveled against her. The argument she maintains that she and Irvin got into, you know, when he ran away. Yeah. She stated to KWCH-TV, quote, I was upset and we say mean things when we get mad, things you don't mean, end quote. She went on to tell the news station that she, quote, likely went too far. Probably. Yeah, with Irvin when they used a belt, and that she did lock him in a bathroom. She argued, quote, yes, I left bruises on his legs. I didn't starve him or chain him up like people talked about, end quote. Valerie even went so far as to say that she is still waiting for a phone call from Irvin, letting her know that he's okay. Okay, but if that's the case, and like, because I just think about, like, if it's a child that you love and care about, you would have reported them missing Mm -hmm. before nine years passed or however long it was. Yeah. And when presented with the fact that Doug and Valerie continued to collect money for Irvin and didn't report him missing, which is what you were just talking about, their attorney, Warner Eisenbeast, said that Doug and Valerie felt, quote, horribly guilty, end quote, for not reporting him missing earlier, that they also felt guilty for stealing that money. And that they, quote, love and miss their son, end quote. Well, actions speak louder than words. Yeah. And that's how I feel, too. Like, speaking personally, love means you never stop searching. It means that you call the police. Love means protection that, based on these allegations, was not provided. And love does mean more than just words. Tiffany still feels the impact of her brother's disappearance and as she feels in her heart, his death, she feels the burdens of survivor's guilt, wondering why Irvin suffered the wrath he did rather than her. And she means it. You can hear it in her voice. She loves her brother with the fierce love of loyalty to the end. And she feels pain, as she does love, very deeply. Sleuthhound, she deserves answers. Doug Herman died in July 2016 of natural causes and can no longer provide information. But there are still those alive who can. In fact, the Butler County Sheriff, Kelly Herzett, has pulled no punches and directly pointing to Valerie Herman for answers. He told KWCH-TV, quote, I believe Valerie Herman has more to tell, and she's not talking at this point, end quote. Is there someone out there who could tell law enforcement what that item is that may have answered a main question in the investigation? Someone who might have more information either about where Irvin might have gone or in what happened to him. Did someone witness odd behavior or activity from anyone who might be involved? Irvin Greniger II said the following in an interview with KSNWTV, quote, you know, I've lost him once. I can't lose him twice. I can't do that. Well, I'm not going to point any fingers at the Hermans. I don't know anything about what went on or what's possible that went on. I just know what I've read in the media. I'm sure there's somebody out there that knows something, and I just wish they'd step forward, right or wrong, step forward. If you've seen him, step forward, end quote. What we do know is a simple fact that Sheriff Craig Murphy made abundantly clear in an interview back in 2009 that's still true today. He noted, quote, One thing I've learned in my career is not all evidence disappears. It's just up to us to dig it out, 
end quote. Irvin had some identifiable scars, such as a birthmark on his waistline on his back, about a quarter inch by half an inch big, several scars on his abdomen, and a three-quarter inch scar on the inside of his left thigh. He was called, at the time, by the name his foster parents gave him, Adam Herman. The saddest feeling in the world is that a broken child has been overlooked again. Do not let that happen, sleuth hounds. Do not be passive bystanders this week, but bring up the name Irvin Greniger III in conversation. Talk about the hard issues. Cry for justice. Post about him on social media. And above all, just as Sheriff Murphy urged us to do, keep digging. And if, by some chance, you're still out there, Irvin, I want you to know that your family has never stopped thinking about you, have never stopped hoping for justice, have never stopped loving you, and that they want you to come home to them. That love, the kind that lasts through trial and tribulation, the kind Tiffany feels for all of her siblings, the ability to see the good and the hope through all of the pain as she does, that, sleuth hounds, is what love should look like, the kind all people deserve. If you have any information concerning Irvin's whereabouts or details concerning his disappearance, any detail you remember, please contact the Butler County Sheriff's Department at 316-322-4254 or Butler County Investigations at 316-322-4257. Again, please like and join us on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.